Hello and welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm delighted to welcome Rachel Clark, doctor, campaigner and best-selling writer. Rachel started off as a TV journalist, making documentaries about subjects ranging from the Monica Lewinsky scandal to the civil war in the Democratic Republic of Congo. She retrained as a doctor in her late 20s and is now a palliative care doctor and a passionate campaigner for the NHS. She's written three best-selling books, Your Life in My Hands, Dear Life and Breathtaking, an account of working at the Covid frontline. In this podcast, she talks about truth, beauty and humour. Yes, even in a pandemic. Rachel, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast. Now, normally I start this podcast by asking people how lockdown has been for them, but obviously you haven't had any lockdowns. You have, in fact, had more than a year of grinding, harrowing, traumatic work. How how are you feeling at the moment? Well, uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, And I guess... I'm I'm finding myself uh, feeling incredibly emotional now. I think ever since the year anniversary of the first day of lockdown um, a week or two ago, I can't stop thinking about the enormity of the last year. Somehow, um, in a more intrusive way almost than while living the last year, very much of it on the front line, treating patients, seeing patients dying from COVID. There's something about being immersed in the midst of it that almost anaesthetizes you. It stops you from really reflecting on what you're experiencing because you just, you can't. It's, It's difficult to allow yourself to do that and still carry on. Whereas now, with the wonderful news that cases are, are, are so low of COVID in the country now and vaccination rates are so high, um, it almost frees you up to dare to relive something of what you've experienced. Um, and it's very intrusive. I, I find myself thinking about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Your wonderful book, Breathtaking, which I reviewed for the Sunday Times in January, is an account of life on the front line of the pandemic, starting on New Year's Day last year, but an ending apart from the epilogue at the end of April last year, which is nearly a year ago. Did you have any sense then that what would follow later would be even worse? Not even in the slightest. And if anyone then had turned round and and I think said to us in the NHS, this is only the beginning and you are going to endure a second wave that put, makes this look small by comparison. I think we would have all curled up in balls and turned our faces to the wall and said, we can't do it. There is absolutely no way. Um, but of course, one of the most extraordinary things we've we've learned, almost whether we like it or not during the last year, is just how resilient human beings are Mm. I think when you work in palliative medicine as I do you're you're constantly blown away by people's capacity to um, confront profound change profound loss in their lives um, a, a complete transformation of their future their life as they know it with incredible 
resilience and tenacity and and courage really and and often a real absence of self-pity that is extraordinary and I guess in a way this year this pandemic year has been a year of necessary resilience on the part of healthcare workers as well as patients because I think collectively everybody's been enduring so much whether we like it or not mm, I know it's it's funny I mean I've been you know super privileged kind of observing the pandemic from the comfort of my sofa while drinking wine eating kettle chips drinking coffee eating cakes and so on but consuming the news with a, a, just an absolutely sick heart and Last night, I don't know, I have the sense that people think vaccines mean it's all over. And obviously vaccines mean it's much, much better. But we woke up the news this morning that SAGE modellers have shown that there could be a third wave. I mean, arguably what we've just been through is a third wave, but another wave bigger than the second wave when uh, when things are released over the summer going into the autumn. And that's worse than worse than even I, as you know, quite a pessimist feared. How do you respond to that news? Yeah, it's it's very difficult because I think, like everybody in Britain and and all across the world, I want to go back to life as it was prior to twenty twenty. I want this all to go away and um, go back to life as we knew it. Of course, because everybody has lost something in the last year, even if we are very lucky and all we have lost is, um, you know, the freedom to walk outside and interact with other people or not wear a mask on our face. Everybody has lost something. Um, And perhaps one of the greatest losses is that sort of glorious, complacent sense that we can live our lives um, in relative freedom from infectious diseases in Britain, where there, there, there aren't that many infectious diseases that can run through a population and kill whole swathes of us. We're incredibly fortunate in that sense. Um, the, the, the notion of having to adapt permanently and accept that there may, certainly for the next few years to come and possibly indefinitely, restrictions on our lives that were not in place this time just over a year ago is is really hard to confront um and i suppose what i try to cling on to is this idea of resilience that we are an extraordinarily adaptive and um elastic species we are incredibly creative in managing the circumstances of our lives and making the best of them and if we have to adapt our lives we'll do it we'll find a way to do it um I really believe that but there's a part of me like everybody else who wants to believe we can wave a magic wand and simply go back to life as we knew it I'm sort of mourning the loss of life as it used to be um but we can't and we have to, to look open-eyed, you know, clear-headed at the future and not indulge wishful thinking because the quickest way to go back into a state that sees us with rising um, levels of, of illness and, and death again is precisely that. It's to indulge in wishful thinking and blind mm. optimism. 
I mean, you, I know you, you probably have to be a little bit careful. I don't know how careful you have to be. That's a question in itself politically, because you are clearly very outspoken on in the media generally and on uh, programmes like Question Time. Well, in fact, many people working in the NHS are muzzled, essentially. They are told that if they speak out, they will lose their jobs. But I mean, that sense of delusion, actually, uh, from government and even now from Tory backbenchers people saying you know we don't want our liberty curtailed as if as if having your liberty curtailed meant that you could live a normal life I mean it's just you know the fact is that we are facing a world we are currently in a world and as you say continuing to face a world for quite a while where walking into a cafe or a pub or getting on a bus could either kill you or give you long COVID, wreck your health for a very long time. We don't know how long yet because we don't have the data on long COVID. How do you how do you kind of manage that sense of these people are living on another planet? <laughs> it's it's difficult. Um, and I guess I I believe fundamentally as a doctor that um, everything I do and say should be a form of acting in the best interests of patients and um, for me and and, and I'm not saying this is how I think it should be for all doctors in, in any sense but for me that kind of duty to act in patients best interests extends um outwards beyond just the patient immediately in front of me and in a way to all possible patients future patients and that entails for me being outspoken about things that I think are important and matter because they are a way of protecting current patients or future patients from um aspects of wider society that could cause them harm and this attitude that you describe, um, a, a, a kind of very assertive, sometimes quite aggressive um, form of individualism, um, a, a commitment to freedom that is all about an individual's personal freedom um, prioritised above our responsibilities towards the welfare and well-being of each other, the other people who inhabit our society, I see is very, very dangerous indeed, because one person's freedom, of course, is potentially another person's harm. And I don't want to inhabit a society in which all of us pretend that we can exist as atomized individuals whose individual freedoms don't impact upon other people. You know, John Donne famously said, no man is an island. And of course, that is absolutely true. Mm. And when um, somebody like um, Toby Young or, or Lawrence Fox or, or, or actually um, a number of our elected representatives, MPs in Parliament, sort of take a stand and say, um, no one can tell me not to wear a mask or not to um, hug everyone I choose. I find that extraordinary because it's not simply about your individual freedom. It's about the fact that you refusing to wear a mask or you going out and socialising with all of your mates literally could be the death 
of a 13-year-old girl who suffers from cystic fibrosis and has damaged Mm. lungs and an impaired immune system and doesn't have the luxury of not wearing a mask Mm. or not shielding at home for an entire year precisely because of the selfish actions of people who believe that their freedom trumps everything. Mm. Um, And I'll speak out against that as, as assertively as I can because it's always the vulnerable people in society who don't have a voice, who don't have the power and wealth and status and ability to court controversy and get a thousand likes and, you know, go viral or or sit on question time panels themselves and perpetuate this individualism that ultimately can claim the lives of people who don't have that power in society. That's absolutely right. But you know what's so interesting about those libertarians, including the Tory backbenchers who are still fighting on various fronts, the Steve Bakers, etc., is that actually they're out of step with the public. You know, the Boris Johnson was originally one of them and still in his heart one of them, but for PR reasons, I think he knows he, you know, he, all he wants in life is to get re-elected probably a couple of more times. And tragically, that looks as though that might well happen. But um, the weird thing is that they are operating on the premise that it's only about the vulnerable as if the vulnerable don't matter. But what we what became evident very quickly is we don't know who's going to be vulnerable to this thing. It could be absolutely anyone. There are young people who've had their futures wiped out through long COVID, which they may have, they may have organ damage lasting for years. And so it's it's a kind of interesting test that that aggressive individualism has been put to a kind of public poll in a way, and it has failed. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I I guess there's I think there's two things that are fundamentally deeply wrong with with that libertarian approach. And I I think the British public see that as well. What one is, as you say, we actually don't know who is vulnerable. Um, You know, we, we have cared for men and women in their 40s, 30s, 20s who have gone on to die from COVID Mm. in intensive care, not to mention the whole swathes of people suffering from long COVID. So there's that. We've seen children die from COVID in this country. Um, But also, I think fundamentally, this idea that somehow that there is a vulnerable group of individuals in British society who are essentially expendable, whose lives can be sacrificed for the sake of those young and healthy enough to be worth saving, is really reprehensible. And, And actually... That is fundamentally the herd immunity approach that was clearly propounded by the government last year, although they've desperately tried to row back Mm. on that when they saw the public revulsion. Um, That's clearly what has been at play for much of the last year, this idea that um, if you are old or suffering from some kind of illness, you can be consigned to a year of shielding at home an awful lot of empty rhetoric about being protected, whereas, of course, as we know, people in care homes were not protected one jot in the first wave. They were clearly sacrificed in their tens of thousands. At bottom, that is a a depiction of British society, which is two tiers. Tier one, you're worth saving. Tier two, you are 
that you are sacrificial, you can be sacrificed, your life doesn't matter as much as the people who are worth saving. And I just don't believe that that is British society, that that represents British society, um, as demonstrated by the public outpouring towards Captain Tom, for instance, who Mm -hmm. raised his millions of pounds for the NHS. Nobody saw him as somebody who could just be sacrificed because he was 99 and then Mm -hmm. 100. He was cherished and loved by the British public precisely because of the magnificent person he was. So so the government and Boris Johnson are out of step with the British public and... um, and I really hope they take heed of that. <laughs> I think they, I think they are now, uh, as I say, quite possibly for reasons of self-protection and PR, if nothing else. But I think one of the things that was also very shocking was that in, originally, while Boris Johnson was missing his five Cobra meetings, spending time at Checkers with Carrie Simmons, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the scientific advice through, given through Chris Whitty and Patrick Valence, was to treat this thing like flu. And I will never forget the insouciance of Patrick Valence saying on TV something along the lines of, well, yes, of course, a lot of people will die. And the absolute horror of the TV presenter and the horror of anyone watching that, as if, you know, to use a current phrase, all of these deaths, and we were talking a lot, uh, were baked in. I remember being in the green room at Sky. Uh, So during February, I suppose, when a story broke in The Observer that there would be half a million deaths. And I I just howled in the green room. And I was on with, I won't say who I was on with, but somebody very, who's very libertarian and was, you know, claiming the whole thing was like flu and so on. And at that point, I thought, oh, my God, we are going to be living through worse than a war, a kind of hell on earth. And clearly the government is going to do nothing about it. It's going to just let this thing happen. And within quite swiftly, I've had a lot of death in my life and in my family. And quite swiftly, I thought, okay, the government's going to let this thing happen. People are going to be dying all around us. I am not going to die because I've had cancer twice. And I'm, but more importantly, I'm not going to let my partner die because I, you know, he's what I've got left. And uh, so I thought, okay, I'm going to have to kind of lock myself away, miss out on so-called normal life. But at least that way, I've got a hope of, you know, staying alive and keeping someone I love alive. But I could not believe that the government and the scientists were going ahead with this gruesome strategy, if you want to call it that, and that people were walking around as if everything was normal. I wanted to scream, don't you realise what's going to happen? I mean, when was the point that it really hit you? Was it Lombardy or or was there a particular moment? Yeah, I mean, I... I yeah completely identify with everything you've just said and 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 i thought the same from i th- i think that there were a couple of turning points so there was a point at which um a very young chinese doctor an ophthalmologist um mm. called li wenliang died in intensive care of covid himself having been a very early whistleblower who, mm. who spoke out about this terrible disease um, that was inflicting patients in his hospital and got severely reprimanded by the Chinese state for doing so. So his his image, um, he 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 posted images of himself, selfies from his hospital and even from intensive care before he died. And when he died on the sixth of February, 
those images went viral and they spread all around the world, including among doctors in this country. And I remember looking at these two photos of Li Wenliang, one when he was healthy and a clearly vital young man, um, and one a day or two before he died in intensive care. And I realised then that whatever was being said about this disease and maybe the vast majority of the lives it would claim would be those of elderly or infirm individuals it also very clearly affected young healthy people as well and then in in Lombardy you could still convince yourself then this was something happening on the other side of the world but but when we started to see similar images from Lombardy, horrific images from doctors and nurses whose faces were sort of scarred and etched with the pressure of their PPE masks um, in late February, that was when it was obvious that something horrific was on our doorstep. And the kind of slow motion complacency with which we sleptwalked mm. into the pandemic at that point was almost unbearable and and I think your point about the I remember the insouciance is the perfect word for Patrick Valance in that interview which I saw too I was also horrified I, I I remember at that time crying sometimes at the 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 horror of what the government and the government scientific advisors seemed to be allowing to unfold And in the first few weeks when I started caring for patients with COVID, um, those early experiences really underlined the horror for me because it was almost as though there were two tiers of patients. There were the patients who were young and healthy enough to potentially earn themselves an intensive care bed and everything was being thrown at those patients. We were... um, striving to increase our ICU capacity, our number of ventilators, making sure people working in ICU had the best possible PPE. And then there was everyone else, all the people who were not young and healthy enough to ever be able to go on a ventilator because they just weren't physically robust enough. This wasn't discrimination. It was just a fact about the the, the hard truth that you can only really go on to a ventilator if you have a chance of coming off again. And if you are very physically frail, the likelihood of you ever coming off again is so small as to make it not a a sensible attempted treatment. I was caring for the patients on the wards, the people who were never going to get an intensive care bed. They were elderly, they were frail, they were terrified, and there was almost nothing for them. We didn't have the proper PPE. We were on wards surrounded by COVID. We were breathing it in and out. It was steeped. Everything was steeped in it. And these patients were almost forgotten. We were providing the best palliative care we could, but it was almost as though what was happening to these patients on the wards and in their own homes and in care homes was completely silent and invisible. No one knew about it. No one cared about it. The entire public narrative was about ICU and Mm. ICU patients. And I could see a two-tier system right there and then. I felt as though I was watching herd immunity in action Mm. unfolding every day Mm. it was horrific I mean you've spoken and written about how patients were not left to die alone and I have absolutely no doubt that you and your colleagues gave the most compassionate care possible in the circumstances but 
yes, there was a two-tier system and clearly tens of thousands of people, I mean, we've had 150,000 deaths and only a relatively small percentage of those will have died in ICU. So tens of thousands essentially were left to die either at home on their own, unable to get a hospital bed or refused an ambulance, or as you say, many were left to die in uh, wards without uh, without access to ICU. And yes, I take your point that some of those would not have been um, eligible for ventilators, they wouldn't have survived it, but there were very early documents emerging, and this was in March, about rationing and people over 65 or even under 65 not who would be refused access to uh, ICU because there wouldn't be enough beds and this was a, this was a, a PR uh, exercise in which all the way through the uh, government said there was enough PPE as you know uh, agonizingly there wasn't and colleagues of yours and 600 more than 600 around the country died possibly through the lack of it we were told there were there was never a shortage of beds. The NHS coped. All of this. It was just a catalogue of lies. And I mean, how did you how did you contain your anger about that, Rachel? I know you had to go to work. Well, you you chose, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But you had to do what was under your nose, which was care for people who were dangerously and often mortally ill. But how did you cope with your anger? I tried to channel it. Um, otherwise, I would have gone mad. Um, the The thing that for me was most harrowing throughout the last year, right at the start, and then particularly um, in the run up to Christmas and, and January of this year, the hardest thing was not the scale of the death and dying, although I had never experienced anything like it in my professional lifetime, and that's speaking as a palliative care doctor mm -hmm. for whom dying is my day job, mm. it wasn't even the cruelties of COVID as an infectious disease that separates, forces people apart at precisely those moments when they need human contact and closeness and humanity the very most. It was not even that. It was specifically the horror of knowing, because I was witnessing it every day, what was really unfolding mm. for patients with this disease versus the rhetoric that was being spoken from that podium day after day after day by the government um, as a way of trying to essentially massage their own reputation at the expense of the truth mm. and we know this happens in politics it's not it's not um something that is unique to any political party it is politics a, a significant and fundamental part of politics in any country is media management and reputation management but to prioritize that above what needs to be said to save lives in a pandemic is a particularly reprehensible kind of spin, I would mm. argue. Um, and I found it almost unbearable to witness a thousand and one examples of that. I'm in various little WhatsApp groups with other doctors and almost round the clock, those groups were were, were sort of they were just a, a kind of napalm in my phone because we were all so horrified collectively by that. And I suppose what I tried to do 
at work was just focus on the one patient in front of me and then the next patient in front of me because at least I could do my best for those patients and that was something and then when I wasn't at work I tried to channel my anger and I tried to use it and I tried to write and speak and tell the truth and say the things that needed to be said because I had to I had to try and tell the truth Mm. because otherwise people were going to die and I didn't have any illusions about being powerful I just felt that I had to try and and speak out as best I could and I didn't care what the consequences were because there were people dying all around me Mm. and I'm a doctor Mm. I mean for me it it felt like the nearest we've got to living in a totalitarian state and obviously we're not in a totalitarian state although you know (laughs) at times with a majority of 70 you know, one wonders, but mm-hmm. truth is the first casualty of totalitarianism. And I almost feel you can live with anything if there is truth. But when there isn't truth, that's when you think you're going to go mad. And obviously, I, I've been following, unable to do anything. You know, I all I can do is sit at home and do basically sweet FA. But I followed it all very closely, everything I could read and find out about this. And your book, there was your accounts of what happened. They didn't surprise me in any way, but they were incredibly moving and desperately upsetting and searingly powerful. But there was nothing there to surprise me because I kind of knew that I knew about a lot of that already. But um, in reviewing, I reviewed uh, Failures of State, the Sunday Times yeah. Insight team's uh, book about the government's handling of the pandemic a couple of weeks ago. And I have to say there was a certain catharsis in seeing it all chronicled by the investigative team of a essentially, you know, quite a right wing, previously pro-Brexit, pro-government paper. And I just wonder, you know, whether whether there is catharsis for you in truth. Absolutely, enormously so. Um, And it, it might sound, I really hope this doesn't sound um, uh, grandiose in any way, if that's the right word. But I think in a strange way, because I was a journalist, before I became a doctor, I came into medicine, with the conviction already um, sort of embedded in me that telling the truth trying to highlight the truth, um, particularly if there are powers and forces who who have reason to suppress it, was an incredibly important and valuable um, endeavour. And in healthcare, there are so many voices that are silenced, uh, that are not heard, or people who are invisible. And, And in a way, the pandemic and lockdown made people even more invisible than they are usually because suddenly everybody was behind closed doors and who knew what was going on behind those doors. Um, I I think I, I came into medicine with this very strong desire to try and um, advocate for those particular groups of patients whose voices are, are not always heard. And that was part of my um, decision to, to specialise in palliative medicine because patients at the end of life are often so weak and so exhausted and just grappling with their disease that they don't have the energy to 
advocate necessarily for themselves and they need sometimes people speaking out on their behalf. Um, I can't bear the idea of people dying a death that is worse, that contains more suffering or lack of dignity than it needs to. And that's a really strong part of of me wanting to be a palliative care doctor. Um, So I think I just wanted to, I, I believed that speaking out was a way of helping patients and maybe making things better mm. in a tiny way and that it was necessary and it wasn't I'm not sure it was a catharsis um I don't I don't know if that catharsis will ever come to be honest mm. but it was certainly um that the the, the possessing the ability to act through words through speaking words or or writing words was um was a way of maintaining my sanity really because Um, I felt I was doing something um, and that impotence that you describe is the most corrosive thing isn't it your desperation to do something and I always felt incredibly lucky that both in my day-to-day doctoring and then also in in the attempts to speak out at least I could act. Mm, mm. And act is the first, I, I think hope, hope is a is a verb in a way. It's not a feeling. To be hopeful, you have to believe in the possibility of acting, of change, of making yes. things better. And I, I, I've always been lucky enough in the pandemic to be able to act. Mm. I want to ask you about journalism, um, because you did, you, you were a, a award-winning TV documentary maker and you made films in some very harrowing circumstances about uh, rape in the Congo and all kinds of uh, you know very challenging subjects but you didn't find it fulfilling and you write in your book Dear Life about lying in the bath thinking of slitting your wrists which would be to many people a surprising response to the kind of acclaim you were getting, the plaudits were pouring in as you were doing that. Can you say a little bit about what happened to you and journalism? Yes, um, I I think in my youth, I was a typical um, sort of A-star student perfectionist who was driven deep down by fear of failure and and, and anxiety that I wasn't good enough and therefore had this sort of void that I was endlessly and hopelessly trying to fill through external acclaim really and and we probably all know people like this and maybe some of the people listening are are, are like this themselves. Um, So although on the one hand I thought journalism was a a, a wonderful um, profession I thought it it could do such good you can change the world through words it it was a a, a wonderful thing to be a part of it was also for me very hollow and empty because I never quite managed to um, uh, fill that void or or feel as though I was I, I wasn't I wasn't happy with the person I I was and my perfectionism meant I sort of kept on and on working in an obsessive workaholic way um, while 
never feeling good enough, never feeling loved enough, or all, all, all of that stuff. And I think when you're a perfectionist um, and driven, you end up um, not having the time or, or energy for all of the things in life that actually are nourishing and um, do feed your soul and do make you the human being you are, which is time with the people you love. Um, and somehow bound up in all of that was a, a, a real fear that I had made the wrong decisions when I was still a kid at school and, and I should have chosen medicine um, when instead I chose English and arts and, and those subjects. Um, because medicine, I could see, was a sort of day-to-day, completely different experience Um it's not creative medicine in 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 many ways you're not creating something that is open-ended you are focusing on another human being in front of you um and I just kept believing that I I might have got it fundamentally wrong and, and and this emptiness might just be me or perhaps it was that I was in the wrong career the wrong profession and the only way to 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 test that out was to was to take a plunge and change careers, um, which was very scary and very daunting. But if you have found yourself lying in the bath thinking of slitting your wrists, then you definitely don't have anything to lose. Mm-hmm. So why not? So um, <laughs> my medicine started from that point, a very negative point in my mm-hmm. life. Um, and I, you know, went did my science A-levels in the evening around work and, and got into medical school. And then literally from day one of medical school, I... I felt at home. I felt like I was myself. I wasn't faking it anymore. I wasn't pretending to be a a kind of big shot journalist, which I definitely wasn't. Um, And I wasn't a fraud anymore. I was learning something that I just loved for its own terms. I wasn't doing it for anyone else. I was doing it for me. And and then when I started seeing patients, all of that was magnified a thousandfold. I just, I loved my interactions with patients um, and I just felt like I, I was here doing the thing I was meant to do for the first time in my life. It was incredible. Mm. I mean, to use an old fashioned word, vocation, really, it, it, it sounds as if you found your vocation. And yet as a child, you wanted to be a writer. And many writers would also see writing as a kind of vocation, whether or not there are any economic rewards that go with that. Do you, do you feel that you have a kind of double vocation and that you're sort of fulfilling both of them I think in a strange way they are one and the same um in the sense that fundamentally all all the doctors I know who are good doctors who are great doctors have this extraordinary deep rooted love of people of 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 other human beings they are endlessly interested in other people and their stories um and my my father for instance who who Mm. who was a doctor he just loved people so did my grandfather also a doctor Um, and to be a writer of course you have to be endlessly fascinated in other people and their stories and humanity as well, I think. Mm. Um, and, and and that wonderful quote from Philip Pullman, who, who um, famously said that after food and companionship 
and shelter, the thing we need most in the world is stories. Mm. I think is truer almost in a hospital, in a setting that is filled with pain and suffering and fear and vulnerability than almost anywhere else. We need stories. We need to be able to tell ourselves stories about our lives that give them meaning and an arc and something to move towards if we if we no longer have a story isn't that the ultimate hopelessness if we can't see our future if we can't see where we're heading stories are absolutely vital and illness and disability shatter people's stories Mm. their sense of ourselves so to my mind it's all bound up it's all one and the same thing and I think there's a reason why some of the very very great writers and I'm thinking particularly here of of Chekhov and his incredible short stories Mm. are doctors it's a kind of it's that the love of humanity and human stories inspires both the writing and the medicine and I must stress here in no sense am I suggesting I have anything to do with Chekhov of course, um, in in my writing, but I just know that I'm endlessly interested in people, and that seems to drive the two. Um, and doctors and writers, I think ma- many doctors and many writers are are idealist, idealistic as well. Mm. They they want to make things better. They want to make the world a better place. It's just that you might do it through words, or you might do it through transplanting a heart. <laughs> well, I'm I've been a critic for 30 years and I think your books are absolutely wonderful so um you know I don't think we need to obviously Chekhov is setting the bar quite high but, <laughs> but even so I don't think I don't think you need any self-deprecation on that front I was thinking also of Bulgakov and um I was thinking about I was thinking about the humor that uh, is often emerges in uh, the humour that often emerges in literature written by doctors, and wondered, uh, doctors famously have, you know, black humour. Um, what what role does humour play in in your professional life? It's so very important. Um, I, I think in palliative medicine, especially, there is a surprising amount of humour, n- not just amongst the doctors behind closed doors and that there certainly is a lot of inappropriate black humor because that's a way of coping with maybe difficult circumstances at work Um, but also between doctors and patients and their families I I have found um, often I might be talking to a patient about the fact that they're going to die or their diagnosis is terminal and somehow we will find in that conversation something to laugh about. And afterwards, the patient or their family may say to me, I was so delighted that you were able to make a joke, that you felt able to make a joke, because God knows that's when you need humour, um, when when you're facing the worst. And it's, it's really interesting to me how powerful humour can be. I think it's almost a way of of saying to a patient, I don't just see you as somebody who is dying imminently from your disease. I see you as a human being. Let us laugh about something together. Laughing and making a joke is creative. It's it's playful. It's something that 
maybe only human beings can do, make, make a, a, a self-aware joke. And so it's very profound and important. Um, so I actually think humour is um, is a very healing thing to do. It's, a, it's an important medicine in its own right, as well as um, a way of coping for doctors. Um, and, and on that latter um, issue, we are endlessly and in, inappropriately joking amongst ourselves um, because it's a release because it's a way of sometimes putting distance between yourself and, and really traumatic circumstances mm. at work. And it's very powerful. Um, it helps. Mm. You also quote, obviously you did a degree in English, uh, as did I, and you quote a lot of poetry in your work. I used to run the Poetry Society and obviously am very keen on poetry. Do you still read much poetry? I do, although I have to confess, I didn't study English at university. Okay. I studied PPE, philosophy, politics. Oh. So I share that crime with Jeremy Hunt and <laughs> cabinet. And you're, and you're not prime minister yet, Rachel. What's I'm wrong with you? <laughs> I didn't even go to Eton, no. <laughs> um, but um, I, I've always read a lot since since early childhood. Um, and, I, and I do read poetry often I I at the moment I love have always loved Mary Oliver oh isn't she wonderful I've been reading Mary Oliver all the way through this last year and her ability to find joy and solace in the natural world I think has been that's been so important to so many of us Mm. in this pandemic year we've sort of looked at the blossom and the blue skies last spring and again now this spring and sort of feasted on it it's it's sort of filled up our souls because it tells us that beauty and life in all its cycles are carrying on remarkably in defiance of all the death and dying that has dominated um, our daily lives for a year Mm. And uh, one of her lines for me encapsulates the whole thing, really, which has been heightened and intensified for so many during the pandemic, even if they didn't think it before, which is what what will you do with your one precious life? And and I think that's in many ways what both your books are about, the way it's what all literature is about, isn't it? But I wonder, has it, you confront death it is your day job as you say you you help people die well all the time has anything about the pandemic changed your priorities for your life I think it yes yes is the answer to that question in a a couple of ways I, I was about to say that it hasn't exactly changed my priorities, but it has made them fiercer. It has highlighted them. Um, and what I'm thinking of there is is this idea um, that Mary Oliver did indeed encapsulate so powerfully when she that that line is, I think it's tell me what are you going to do with yes, your yes. one wild and precious life? That's and this it, idea yes. that that's it, your one wild and precious life which is nothing it is a spark of light against a billion years of deep space and darkness that's all you have Mm. so how are you going to spend it how are you going to savor it 
um, is um, a, a, a way of looking at the world and life that for me has been um, sharpened over the last 12 years. I've been a doctor almost every day at work, but particularly the last few years that I've specialized in palliative medicine, I, I sometimes think to myself that if you're a palliative care doctor, you can encapsulate your your day-to-day work in, in, in these words. Um, I think to myself, my life is death. My, my day-to-day life at work is death. And that has an extraordinary effect on you because it, it tells you every single day of just precisely how precious each lifetime is, whether it's a short or a long lifetime, it is all we have. And it's, it's ephemeral. Every single thing that we love in this world, every single person that we love in this world, we are going to be separated from one way or another, um, be it their death or our death. We are going to lose everything. And the idea that all we can do is savour and cherish every single one of those beautiful, exquisite, profoundly fleeting experiences is astonishing. It's the the kind of joy and curse of being human, isn't it? We know that from the outset, that we can't avoid it. We're mortal. And it doesn't matter how skillfully you try and distract yourself from that fact or or deny it, it will get you in the end one way or another. Um, I think the last year, the pandemic year, has just reinforced my desire to not just save the time I'm lucky enough to have, but also help patients cherish and savour the little amount of time they may have left, even if it's their last hours. I believe there is always a chance for beauty and meaning and and love in in someone's life, even on their deathbed, even mm. if they're dying of COVID, there are ways you can make it better and more meaningful to, to that individual. And I suppose fundamentally the pandemic has just heightened my desire to try and help people live until they die, really live their final months, weeks, days, hours of life as much as possible. And I think perhaps as well, the last year has um, heightened my fear um, that we currently in Britain inhabit a world where the truth doesn't seem to matter to our current government. And therefore, it's it's beholden on us all to, to do our little tiny bits to speak out and tell the truth and bear witness in public and use our testimony to try and um, present an alternative, a truthful narrative of the last year. Because if we don't, we're in that sort of maddening world that you described earlier at the start of this conversation, Christina, where you feel as though you're going mad because, because people are trying to deny facts mm. to to distort facts. And the moment we lose facts, we're in a morass. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you get out of that. So I think to tomorrow you will be being a witness for the people's COVID inquiry. Do you have any 
hope that this will make a difference? Yes, I always do. Um, I think in a democracy, unless you unless you live somewhere like North Korea, if you live in a democracy, you always have your voice, and nobody nobody gets to take away your voice without your consent. In a sense, you can choose to speak out, and even if a bit of you is afraid that your words are just dust on the wind and they're going to disappear and they're fragile and and, and pointless, you still have the choice to speak and throw those words out there. And yes, they may be nothing but dust and yes, they may evaporate and change nothing, but they might not. And that space, that uncertainty is where the hope lives. So you have to keep speaking and you have to keep documenting and providing your little pieces of testimony because in the end if enough people do that we might all be relatively powerless as individuals but collectively we are strong we are a loud voice and I'm never going to allow someone else to take away my voice when there's a chance that it could be useful it could do good. Mm. Your passion shines out of every word you speak and clearly every act you do, you perform as a doctor. One could argue that having work with that profound sense of meaning is a relative luxury in today's world. For many people, their options are relatively limited and we're going into a work landscape post-pandemic where Many jobs will have been taken away and anyway, the pace of acceleration with AI and so on means that many industries are being either destroyed or severely dented. I mean, print journalism clearly is one of them. I lost my job. Many people, many journalists are losing their jobs and it's not automatically evident in mid or late middle age where one goes from there. What advice would you offer to youngsters setting out on a career now, knowing that they may well have to reconsider their career options every few years? Yes, it, it, it's. I, I'm really aware of how privileged I am, and um, I, I was struck by that just a little earlier in our conversation when when you talked about your relative privilege through the pandemic. Um, I was reminded of um, a beautiful essay that Zadie Smith wrote early on in the pandemic um, about the fact that there's no hierarchy to suffering. Mm. And a lot of people have felt guilty about um, finding things hard when on paper their life looks so easy compared to, you know, people who have been bereaved or, or lost their loved ones to COVID or lost their jobs, their livelihoods. And I think she's right. There isn't a hierarchy I agree. to suffering. And, and it. I, I, I try very hard not to judge other people's suffering and experiences because you just don't know. And, I, and, and I'm acutely conscious of the fact that in many ways I have been so blessed during the last year because I've had meaning and purpose, not to mention a, a safe job. I'm not going to be unemployed. I think if you are... Um, young now and you're heading into a world with all this economic and employment uncertainty um, it is really hard 
to hold your nerve. I, I, I think, um, we, you know, we know that in this country, um, I, I think it's around half of the people who have lost their jobs are 25 and under. Mm. Forgive me if that statistic's slightly No, I think that's right, yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess speaking as someone who has um, had very different professional incarnations in, in, in my lifetime, I'm now 48, um, I've learned that you can radically change the course of your life professionally you can go back to square one so I went from being a successful journalist to a um you know someone sort of scratching their way through a levels at night school and then a a baby medical student um you can do all of that and it's risky and you might feel as though you're losing a lot in the process but if you are somehow being true to yourself if you're able to follow what really makes you happy and and drives you and gives you passion in your life, then maybe it's not as risky as you fear. Um, And you could say I'm speaking from a position of great privilege um, because I had managed to build up savings, for instance, um, before I went back to being a student. Um, But the idea that you can reincarnate yourself professionally, you can change things and it's okay, you can take risk and it's worth taking. I hope that that message applies to everybody because the only thing it seems to me that is vital is trying to live your life in a way that's fulfilling to you and finding a a job that fulfills you. Um, So take the risks and and believe that feeling as though you're throwing it all away but actually in pursuit of something that is meaningful to you that's a risk worth taking absolutely wonderful thank you so much rachel clark it's been really fabulous to have you on the podcast thank you very much christina thank you so much for listening to this podcast If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Do follow me on Twitter, where I'm at QueenChristina underscore, and on Instagram, where I'm at QueenChristinaWriter. And if you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart. This is the last episode in the current season, but I hope you'll join me for the next one in early summer. I'll also be taking on a few clients for professional and personal coaching, so do get in touch if you'd like to find out more. In the meantime, here's to the day when we don't have to use the word pandemic.